Good morning, everybody. Hello. Did everybody get a handout? There was a handout on either side of the door when you walked in. Is anyone missing one? Looks like there's still more. Okay, you go ahead. I'll talk while you walk. That's not a problem. That's good. Or somebody could bring them down and pass them along either way. If we run out, let me know, um, and I will have more on me after this hour for the rest of the week. So have no fear. If you did not get one, I'll, I, I can make more. Does everyone have one thus far, though? Looks like we haven't run out yet. Okay. <clears throat> it will cool down in here, my friends. The air, the air comes on right at 11 a.m. on Monday morning, and by the time we're done, it'll be nice and cool. So I just wanted to let you know that. And then for other mornings, it should be on. Okay. I am Margaret LeMay, and I am the Associate Director for the Iowa Summer Writing Festival and Curator of the 11th Hour Lecture Series. Do we have anyone here today who is actually not taking a Summer Writing Festival class this week? Welcome, and thank you very, very much for joining us. I hope that you will do that um, every day this week, every day next week, and every day the week after that. We will be here for the rest of July at 11 a.m., um, so it will be wonderful to have you. Festival attendees, I hope you had a restful night and are ready for a wonderful day. Let's start by spending some time with our longtime and greatly talented festival faculty member, Sandra Schofield. Sandra is the author of seven novels, including Beyond Deserving, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, and a memoir. She is also author of two books on craft for fiction writers, and she will read from The Last Draft, a novelist's guide to revision, tonight at 7 p.m. at Prairie Lights Bookstore. Right now, we are very lucky that Sandra is with us to discuss the story lens. Please help me welcome her. Welcome, Sandra. You can hear me. And now I'm trying again. I hear it. Yes. Oh, I did something. See that? Thank you, Margaret. Okay. And I'll speak up. <clears throat> Good Catholic school training to speak up and enunciate. And um, I'm very happy to, to speak to you and have you here. And unusual for me, I'm going to work with an actual manuscript um, because this is a, a, an idea and, and an essay that I've been working on for a while, and it's not really as far along as I thought it would be, but I think it will still make sense. And it is related um, to the idea of story as a lens through which we find and do our writing. So I'm here today to talk to you about the endeavor of writing about your life, but also to talk about how that work can feed your art, giving you not just subject and events, which you think of as life story, but also perspectives, questions, forms, and meaning that help you with all kinds of writing. When very small children start to talk, one of the early things they do is tell stories. Bunny fell. Bear went to grandma's. It's as natural as breathing, this instinct. 
Neuroscientists suggest that telling stories about ourselves is part of the way we shape our lives and our personalities throughout our lives. We grow in our awareness that we are living a story and that we shape it. As we go along, we also amend and update our story and develop a cognitive script that helps us understand how we have become and how we are still becoming. For the most part, none of this is deliberate. It just happens. People do it. But for the people in this room, it is deliberate. Many of us choose to tell our lives, and all of us surely think about them. For our purposes as writers, I think it is especially important to note that scientists tell us now <clears throat> that memories are not a library in our brain. Um, we don't just pluck them out when we need them. There are synapses that store images, but apparently when we remember something, what we are actually doing is constructing the memory that we need. Um, the way we need it. This certainly helps me understand the terrible discord between my sister and me. We haven't spoken, I don't know, almost 20 years, and I couldn't possibly tell you why. Anything from our childhood is a reason for resentment for her. She believes that life was unfair to her in a very particular way that was my fault, and I have no idea how it could have been. Both of us lost our mother, the same mother, at the same time when we were very young. So that was certainly not my fault. But I cannot understand why she has constructed a story so utterly unlike my own to make me an enemy and to hold to it 60 years after our mother died. For me, for my own peace, I try to go back in time and imagine situations and incidents in our young lives and to imagine what those might have been like for her. That empathy helps me personally. I think it also helps me as a writer because isn't that what we do with characters? What's great about this business of constructing as remembering is that it so perfectly fits the kind of consciousness that makes us writers. We are all inventors. We are all builders, scratch artists. We don't just make things up, we tear them down. The deconstruction of memories, the act of integrating, amending them, making them what we can use, feeds our understanding, even as it feeds our sensibility, the way we feel and see the world. It is something we need to do a lot as we write, not just searching for a good draft, not searching for the truth or the shocker premise, but searching for the story we need at the time. It doesn't mean telling a lie. It means finding the interpretation that clears the air or sets a new path or puts one more Lego into the high rise of the narrative you're building. Before I talk about writing per se, I want to share news of an emerging field of study in sociology and cognitive psychology that examines how we shape our personalities with the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. The researcher Don, Dan McAdams at Northwestern University has been conducting what he calls life stories for over three decades. 
He has developed a protocol by which participants in his study groups recall kernel events in their lives and develop a canopy narrative to explain how they became themselves. He recognizes the impact of genetics, of course, but he seems to be demonstrating how powerful the need to narrativize life is and how positive an effect it can have on our sense of self. Here are the major What's wrong with me today? Sorry. Here are the major principles in his scheme, and I am adapting this list from one on the Huffington Post because they did such a good job of summarizing. One, your story is constantly evolving, and it usually becomes positive later in life. There's more room when you are young to deal with conflict and negativity. Personally, I think you lose your patience with those things as you get older. But in in his work, he asserts that you simply become more mature. For whatever reason, older people tend to skew their story positively, perhaps seeking peace. Two, the emotional state and life circumstances we are in when we tell these stories color the emotional tenor of the stories. A person in the aftermath of a divorce or a death or or reeling from losing a job, might want to revisit the act of writing their lives a year later. Three, our stories reflect the social and cultural norms of our societies, though highly generative adults tend to tell redemptive stories later in life. In fact, redemption is the common theme. Things got better. I got better. You tell how people did the best they could. It's a great thing to believe if you can. Four, and here's the big one. You are in control of your story. You can make your story better even in the midst of turmoil. You have to have the attitude that you are going to find something positive in your experience. Scientists call this realistic optimism. And five, you will love this. We tend to conceive of our life story in the structure of a novel. We engage in episodic memory, and we recall scenarios that have a beginning, middle, and end. Now, if we just would remember that when we're writing novels. The ability to do this helps us to imagine a story in the future and helps us to see it even though it hasn't happened yet. Six, and finally, generative people those who are looking for the best in experience, are able to find redemption in difficult times and failures. They feel that they learn from them. Lucky them. I think the implication for writers is great, that it is worthwhile to revisit your past more than once, because retelling, if you consciously try to reconstruct event rather than repeat your past version, creates greater complexity. And don't you all know people who have one story, and that story they tell year after year after year, and there is no getting through it. But as writers, that's not how you see story. Besides, your life story is not the story of a single individual. It's the story of a family and a community, a time in history. The more you try to find additional stories, stories that go with your story, stories that were going on when your story was going on, 
the more you look for meaning, the richer your sense of story is. And that's really what I'm talking about today, is the development of a rich sense of story. Simply put, it means you have more to tell. I believe that one of the results uh, that you have as you develop these ideas about how the world works is your vision of the world. You calibrate experience in light of your expectations, and those have arisen from studying what has happened in the past. In a scheme I use in talking about developing narrative, I emphasize two aspects of vision. The first is agency of character, and the second is the world of the story. To put that another way, agency of character has to do with power, who has it, and intention, what is, what is wanted. The world of the story is simply how this world works, and we all carry a vision of that. I believe the concept is applicable to any kind of writing, and that it's worth thinking about, that it's something you may not even be conscious of when you are drafting. It is worth talking about. If, for example, you are in a writer's group, it makes for a very heady evening of discussion. In your writing, you, uh, you could ask yourself questions like this. In your writing, do people direct their own fate, or are they more likely to be acted upon in ways they can't control? As a um, mentor of novelists, one of the things that I constantly bring up is that so many writers tend to write about victims, and the victims lack agency. Well, you say, that's the way it is. But even people who have little agency struggle. And in struggle, you have agency because you are trying to change things. So keep that in mind. And that's part of what you demonstrate in stories. Um, if you believe that this is how the world works, that people don't have power, um, you feel driven to illustrate it. But if you have already written stories or essays or poems that demonstra demonstrate the impact of a world where people have little control, maybe it is time to consider what can be done to give it to them. I'm convinced that this is an unconscious and fierce force for writers of speculative fiction. They want to create alternative universes. In fact, you may be able to see it quickest if you think about genre fiction in general. What view of the world is developed in a cozy mystery as compared to a die-hard crime novel? Um, what about a romance or a thriller? And what about a lyric poem? Um, I recently read Terence Hayes' powerful work, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, simply an incredible work. They are political poems in the guise of love poems that celebrate and mourn black life. And they all have the same title. As one critic put it, Hayes has reinvigorated a classic form and found the perfect way to illustrate his vision. A novelist or playwright can express vision in a dramatic premise that is proven by the action of the story. Does that make sense? That you believe this is the way the world works. And the critic and playwright Bernard Grimanier says, you need to be able to state that. 
you need to be able to say how you think the world works in your play, he's saying, in your story, in your poem, in your essay. Um, as I speak today, I'm saying the more you know about how to access your own life and memories and meaning, the better writer you become. That's my vision of the writing world. Um, it isn't prescriptive, the idea of the premise, but it is an understanding of human nature that is proven in this particular story. Here are a few examples. Fixating on past grievances impedes a full and present life. And we all know people like that. If we run from what we fear, we fall to its power. Following one's powerful, rightful ambition fuels achievement. It's okay to be ambitious. It's okay to work hard for something. That's how you get there. Timidity and self-doubt paralyze progress. Seizing power ruthlessly leads to estrangement and loss. And you probably notice that the common thing in, in these um, premises that I, I presented is that, for the most part, they are about who holds power and how they use it. And because for, that's how the world gets run, by who's in, who's in charge, who gets to decide things that other people have to live with. What's really interesting is to compile a list of these premise, premise statements <clears throat> You could do it for some of the work that you've already written. You could do it simply for your feeling about how the world works. And then ask yourself, excuse me, <coughs> what if, what if we stood up to that power? What if we dug deep for courage? What would that look like? What would have to happen? What would be the events? What if we just chose to abandon all old anger? Been there, done that, I'm not going to be pissed anymore. What would that do in someone's life? Um, consider your life and observations of life and answer the questions, who wins, who loses, who is deserving, who gets what they deserve, how do people gain power, what do they do with it, and last, who takes care of the children? Why do this? It's a way to touch base with what really matters to you and then to check if that's what you're writing about. Be sure you are writing about what really matters to you. Illustrate your vision. Explore its sources of power. The writer Dina Metzger talks about this in Writing for Your Life, and I'm quoting her. Hemingway was entranced with the expression or failure of heroism in ordinary life while Joseph Campbell wanted to fathom the archetypal nature of heroism. Aeneas Nen had unlimited curiosity about inner life and its manifestations, while John Berger was fascinated, is fascinated by the social and political sources and consequences of the way we apprehend. That is the way we see. And one of his most famous book is called Ways of Seeing. Over time, the questions a writer is asking become deeper and more penetrating until the questions, not the answers, 
become the signature. We can't make psychological theory out of Margaret Duraz's fictional investigation of the wordless obsessions that direct our lives. Ultimately, we are informed in the way only a story can inform by the questions asked, the directions to which they point, and the forms they create about them. It closes the quote. So what do you think about? What obsesses you? What do you talk about so much that you hear yourself wondering if you already said this yesterday? What images, symbols, metaphors, dynamics repeat themselves in your work? It's worth picking up things that you've written and scanning, or skimming, I guess it would be, um, to identify those images, motifs, concerns, and so forth. And think about it. You a lot of them you probably um, didn't think about at the time. They, they came up creatively. A friend said to me many years ago, you know, in all your stories, people are trying to get houses. I never thought of such a thing. A whole history, my history, was playing out in my novels. I had a childhood in other people's houses, in rentals, in trailers. I'm not the only person to recognize or, or to think about houses as an, as an organizer. Mary Gordon wrote a whole book about her grandmother's house. Um, my life story, in my first marriage, I lived in vans and squats, rentals and rooms in other people's houses. In my second, from the very beginning, we have owned homes. I have always had, as Virginia Woolf would have me have, a room of my own. My life story took a huge turn when I got a house. It relieved my fear of poverty and abandonment. In step, in step Out of Our Story, Kim Schneiderman points out the difference between self-discovery and contemplating one's belly button is intention. When we are preoccupied with our inner self at the expense of relationships, we are unconnected. Self-discovery, however, enhances our capacity for compassion and self-reflection and so the more we understand our own story, the more we realize everybody has one. It's apparent, too, that many people believe that it is important to document lives of, of other people, so-called ordinary people, lest their stories be lost to history. Dan McAdams says in The Stories We Live By that we exist in social and ethical context when we collect stories. We seek coherence and reconciliation. And when we ourselves tell our stories, we are creating myths about ourselves. Mature stories are grounded in the reality of time and place and community. If our stories do not integrate us into a social world and a sequence of generations, we degenerate into narcissism. And a little side issue, I feel that a, a great amount of writing, particularly in memoir, is narcissistic, is focused on selfhood at a level in which it doesn't recognize or integrate us into um, the larger world with some kind of hope or, or vision or place or community or whatever. 
I also think novels, uh, you know, I, I haven't done a, a survey, so I'm hesitant to say most or many, but many novels are, have a very dark vision of, of the world, and maybe that's what makes great drama. But, and this may be uh, as I approach a big birthday, my longing for cohesion and coherence and all those things, why can't we make drama out of the effort to create better things, to create better worlds, to create more um, community, to be happy? Um, I'm trying, for the first time, to write a novel like that, to, um, to see if the characters can, um, can do better, can learn to do better. Um, in the United States, and even more so in the United Kingdom, universities have created graduate programs now on life writing, focused on documenting um, groups, individuals, but also groups in particular, like labor forces. Um, there's, there's a whole school that's focused on architecture and the lives of architects and the people who um, are affected by architecture. It, it's important not to lose history, and it's important to keep our sense of history broad enough to encompass really various people. I think creative writers contribute to this meaningful movement. I think of Kay Gibbons. Um, I don't know how many of you read, um, what was it? Now I already forgot, Foster. Uh, Ellen Foster, a wonderful book. She was 26 years old when she wrote it. She's made an entire career based on real stories of people that she discovers in the North Carolina University and Historical Archives. So if you run out of ideas, there's a lot out there. So let's play catch up. Here's what I'm saying. The world at large is interested in life writing. That is, in recording the way people have lived. And this documentation takes many forms. I'm talking about historians and so forth, from diaries and journals to objects like jewelry and quilts and vases and clothing, still and um, action photography. Um, all of those kinds of things can exist in your writing. So when you're developing characters, think of yourself as documenting that character's life and enrich it, it with a lot of context. Um, I'm lost, hold on. Valuable documents in one case became the basis for a study of cognitive change over a lifetime. I love this because I was raised living with nuns. Neuroscientists and psychologists studied the way syntax changed from youth to very old age by examining the, the autobiographies that novices entering the convent were required to write, and then looking at what they could write when they were 75, 80, 90 years old. And you'll be very interested to learn that those who had more complex syntax kept it. Those who wrote very simply were more likely to have signs of dementia in their writing. So keep working on your syntax. So what am I suggesting that you do? Well, write. 
think about it again. I want you to embrace complexity and to just to think of story as having many levels and many perspectives. Explore the gaps in your own life story and embrace its inexhaustibility. You can go back to the same things over and over and they will be different. That's healthy because one, it's helpful to you to think like that when you're revising. You have written a story or a novel or an essay and that's the way it is. Well, it doesn't have to be because what you've learned is everything can be looked at again. Um, some of the gaps that you identify are actually, is the word cruxes, things that, a place where something turns on and how we interpret those cruxes affects how we interpret the whole life story. So you want to look for themes and motifs. Try to identify the ways that you underread and overread your life story. Underreading is the things you leave out. So who else was there? What else was affected? What are you avoiding? What were the forces crossing events? You overread when you put in more than was there. That's the invention. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's a way of avoiding. You know you've done it, so ask yourself why. Was there a hole there that you longed to fill? Why did you fill it that way? Keep in mind that narrative, including autobiography, has two worlds. The story world, which is what happened, and the world of the narrative, which is the story of what it is like to tell it. And I think readers respond to that second thing so much. That's why they love um, you know, first person so much, and I think in memoirs. So consider the past in myriad ways. What was it like to be there? How did it feel? What is it like now to look back on that time? And how does it feel? Don't just read the genre that you're writing. That's really important. You want to find out how other kinds of writing deal with the motifs and themes that you are interested in. Turn to poets and search for the ways that images carry vision. What was Sylvia Plath telling you about love and youth and deceit and the way one person inflicts pain on another? Choose something true and consider how you can tell it so that it amends your vision of it, so that it develops a truth worth sharing. And this I especially want to say, ignore the walls that exist between fiction and nonfiction, autobiography, memoir, poetry, and prose. To hell with what it is you're writing. You don't have to name it. It doesn't have to be a category. It doesn't have a stamp on it. Write it the way it wants to be told. Worry about those things later. And, I, and in, the, in the writing of younger writers now, it's dizzying what they're doing in terms of um, genre. Uh, combine, what did I just pick up? Never mind. I was just in the bookstore, and I picked something up that was the index of life or something. And it was so fascinating because it was an entirely different perspective on story. Compile exercises. And I think it's really valuable to have what I call a process journal that you do your writing, but at the end of the writing session, you say something about how it went and what it made you 
think or maybe list questions. Um, I've just been going through boxes of my writing over the last 30 years. <laughs> First of all, there's a lot of it I can't read because I can't read the writing, literally. I, I had this tendency to write things on little cards. Not, I don't think I had post-it notes yet, but I actually got index cards and cut them in half and used them to make notes. I put a whole story on this. Um, I actually have a novel in my, in my purse, and it's one of those little, uh, what do you call those, those um, little notebooks that, moleskin. It's a little bitty moleskin book. And we were traveling in Italy, and I was, we were traveling, my husband and I and my daughter were traveling with a family, the family of someone I taught here and became best friends with. And her husband and their five children and their in-laws, and one day I said, I can't do it anymore, I'm staying in, in the room. And I wrote a novel in that little moleskin. And I'd totally forgotten about it. I just found it. I can't believe it. It really is a whole novel. Now, do I have time? Do I have time? It's really powerful to just put it on paper because I can guarantee, otherwise you'll forget everything you think. So, when you write fiction, try doing the same inquiries into your characters' lives that you might do into your own. Give them context. Experience, experiment, and express. Find ways to share what you are writing. That's the other thing about this. We all want to be published. It's wonderful to be published. It is so damned hard to get published. That doesn't mean that you can't share. Find every way that you can. Read it. Read at a high school. I have, uh, in fact, I when I lived in, in Southern Oregon, where I moved away 14 years ago, once I once I offered to a creative writing teacher to come in and read to students, and ever after I got calls from other schools, would you come and read to our students? Would you come and read? It's a wonderful experience to read to these hungry kids who have stories of their own and to tell them they can write them. Go to, I, this is another thing I've done, go to senior centers to, see, you know, um, I never know the political word, retirement communities. Same thing. They're hungry for entertainment. Offer to, you know, it may be better if you were a member of a chamber orchestra, but you're not. So say you'll come and, and read some essays about your childhood. They'll eat it up. Um, if you have, you know, try to, try to have some sort of community, even if it's four of you that get together once a month. Every time you share what you've written, you, ha you have contributed something. Even if it's just motes in the air, your life is valuable, and, it's, and sharing is valuable. So don't get stuck on, it's, it's either in a drawer or it's in New York. New York isn't paying much attention to me anymore. We are human, and humans are narrative beings. We seldom live in the moment, though perhaps we should. It is in our nature not only to question, but to record and to adorn. If life history has shaped us, why can't we shape the life history? Embrace the sorrow, grief, and pity, but also the love and silliness and remembering. What you are doing here this week, at home, in your groups, at your desk, is worthy and important to the culture. 
As far as I'm concerned, it outranks football and talk shows and pumping iron. Like the sun, it shines on who we are. Like the moon, it illuminates the night. Thank you. <laughs>